Please grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Well, God has given us great unity through the diversity He created. I think singing is one of the most perfect pictures of that. I, I rarely enjoy moments more than just singing with God's people. This morning I was singing more of a bass. <laughs> then I, I'm normally my own type of singing, but today I think I fit in more with uh, baritones or bass. I don't know what, how that works. I was recently at a conference with about 6,500 other Christians, and we were in <clears throat> the biggest conference center in Atlanta, and it's not built like a church, so we're in this big rectangle, cube-type space. And there was hard floor and hard walls, but when we would sing, just all the voices bouncing out of the room, uh, all around the room, it is just an amazing picture of our body, the body of Christ, that all these different voices come together with one voice. If someone asked you how many voices were in that room, you could say 6,500 or you could say one. Isn't that an amazing thing? And here this morning as we're singing out our praises to God, we're doing it with one voice, though we have many voices. And He gave us an illustration to understand this, God did, and just by giving us our bodies. This human body that we live in is just a unique creation of God and is a perfect illustration for the body of Christ. In God's good design, He granted us a very personal illustration of Christ's body. And we're going to be using that term over and over again, the body of Christ, and so I want us to understand what that means to do a little bit of a broader, short study here at the start of the message. Because when we say that the church is the body of Christ, we're not saying that the church is now Christ incarnate again, right? Or maybe you've heard the phrase, we're the hands and feet of Jesus. Well, that doesn't mean that He is reincarnated again through the church or something like that. But what it means is that the church is the means by which Jesus is accomplishing His will on earth. We're a vessel a chosen vessel of Christ to be His body on the earth to accomplish His will. Some people make reference to this as the mystical body of Christ. The church is the mystical body of Christ. And this can be said of genuine, true, believing local churches like this one. We could say this is the body, the gathering of the body of Christ. But we recognize too that it applies on larger scales. All the believers in the world make up the body of Christ. Or a large number of Christians at a conference make up the body of Christ. But we don't just hear about this in 1 Corinthians 12. I want us to start back in Acts chapter 9. It may seem like a strange place to start, but turn with me to Acts 9. We'll look at the first four verses of this chapter. And we see that the church is the body of Christ in this passage. When you get there, you might see a heading in your Bible. That says the conversion of Saul, the Apostle Paul. This is his salvation moment on the road to Damascus. It says in Acts 9 verse 1, Now Saul, 
still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? If you have a red letter Bible, you'll notice that the words are in red there. This is Jesus Christ meeting Paul on the road, and he's asking Paul why he's persecuting him, Jesus. Look back up at verse 1 with me. Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And yet when Jesus confronts him, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting my disciples? He says, why are you persecuting me? There's a oneness that exists between believers in Jesus Christ and Jesus himself. Such oneness exists that Jesus could phrase it this way to Paul to get the point across. This is my body you are persecuting, he says. Isn't that an amazing thought? Also, the book of Ephesians. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians, but go past 1 Corinthians to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. This is about the church, the body of Christ. We see this phrase used again. uh, Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 11. The apostle Paul, that very one who we just read about was persecuting the body, is now writing letters about the body to the body. And he says in Ephesians 4.11, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. There's our phrase. Verse 13, Until we attain, till we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the mature and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So we see here that we're not just Christ's body, but we're His growing body, aren't we? We are to grow not only numerically as Christ builds His church and the kingdom expands, but even together we are to grow in maturity, we are to grow in knowledge, we are to be a local growing body of Christ. And then in Colossians 1, just a couple books past Ephesians, a couple pages even, Colossians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 24 and 25. We have earlier in this chapter, in verse 18, where Paul wrote that Christ is the head of the body, the church. And we see down in verse 24, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of His body, which is the church in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. Paul here is saying that he's suffering for the church as Christ did. He's suffering for the body. As a member of the body, he's suffering for the body, for Christ's body. We get the same idea at the end of Ephesians 5. You don't have to turn there, but Ephesians 5 and verse 28, talking about husbands and wives, Paul wrote, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, 
but nourishes it and cherishes it, here it is, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of His body. So we see this connection in multiple places in Scripture that the church is the body of Christ. And Paul has taught in Ephesians 5 that growing in Christ means more sacrifice. You husbands sacrificing for your wives, as Christ did, as the bridegroom sacrificing himself for the bride. And even as Paul taught in Colossians 1, as all of us are to do toward one another, we are to seek to suffer even for the body of Christ, not just for Christ himself, but for the church. Because there's a fundamental oneness that exists between Jesus and his people. So much so that over and over again in the New Testament, we have this illustration that we are his body. You can't get much more unified than that. He is the head and we are his body. And in our text today in 1 Corinthians 12, we see the human body used as an illustration for the church, both universal and local. And the aspects that Paul's highlighting is not just the unity, but also the diversity. Again, verse 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for even as the body is one, there's our unity, and yet has many members, there's our diversity, and all the members of the body, though they are many, there's our diversity, are one body, there's our unity, so also is Christ. Your body has great unity and great diversity, your human body. You know this, you've enjoyed this for your whole life. You have all kinds of things you can accomplish through this vessel that God has given you, that He's designed in such a way that you can steward the earth, that you can manage the earth. That's our great task as those made in God's image. We have this body that He's given us that is diverse and, of course, greatly unified. And Paul says, just as our bodies are that way, he says something interesting at the end of verse 12, so also is Christ. That phrasing might strike you as pretty interesting because that's not the way we would expect him to phrase that. As our bodies, our human bodies are diverse and unified, well, so also is Christ. Well, you could read that phrase this way, so it is with Christ's body. Just as our human bodies are this way, so it is with Christ's body. We come together to be one in Christ. All of us together are one in Christ, just as we are individually. There's a great verse that I've I've just cherished more and more as we've studied the book of 1 Corinthians. Back a couple pages, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17. This is talking about our individual relationship with Christ. It says, the one who joins himself to the Lord, Jesus, is one spirit with him. I love that verse. That teaches us a lot of things. But you could also say, collectively, the church is one with Christ. We are so identified with Christ that we are referred to as His body. And the Corinthians needed to hear this, lest we lose the context of this letter. Remember, the Corinthians are the ones who were really good at dividing, really good at forming teams. If you can remember back to chapter 1, the Corinthians were the ones saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ, and they're making all these different teams and squaring off against each other to see who would be the wisest group, the most knowledgeable group, the most favored group. And that is so not the way church is supposed to be. That's not the way the local bodies of Christ are to behave. We are to behave with great unity even through our diversity. And the Corinthian problem was that they grasped their diversity. 
They were very well in touch with their diversity, but they lost all unity. They lost the unity they have in Christ. And sadly, many churches go through this so often. And they live this way. They come together not really to be together spiritually, but to be a bunch of different people or to be a bunch of different groups of people, never truly experiencing the church-wide oneness that there is to be. It's one of the reasons why I really don't like the idea of churches with two services. If you're one body, I want to experience that. Or, heaven forbid, the contemporary service and the traditional service. Splitting churches up based on preferences. Do they ever experience that we are one body? They all claim the same name of the church they go to, the services they attend, but do they really experience the oneness? Verse 14, the body is not one member, but many, yet we are one body. We are one body with many parts. Look at verse 13 with me. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The drink of one Spirit. Well, the first big idea we see in verse 13 is that God has made us members of His body through Spirit baptism. You see that? We were baptized by one Spirit. It doesn't say by one church leader. It doesn't say by water. It says by one Spirit. This isn't talking about water baptism. This is talking about spirit baptism, which is different. And this can be confusing for some. In fact, some of you have probably been a part of certain Christian traditions or been associated with certain groups where there's a teaching that spirit baptism is this next level of Christian living that you have to attain, that not all believers have been baptized with the Spirit or by the Spirit, but that you will have some special spiritual experience when you encounter the Holy Spirit, and not all Christians have that experience. Well, that's a false teaching. That teaching is anti-biblical. That teaching does harm to the unity of the body of Christ. If we're just looking at some basic observations, notice again in verse 13, he uses the word all. (laughs) That's important, isn't it? For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now, surely there were people in Corinth who hadn't been water baptized yet. Surely there were people there who were at different levels of Christian maturity, different levels of spiritual experience. But all of that aside, Paul could say confidently, by one Spirit, we have all been baptized into the body of Christ. And this is God's work. Look down at verse 18 with me. Same chapter, verse 18. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as He desired. This is an explicit statement of God's sovereign work in putting together His church. And all who are members of the church have been placed in the church through this baptism by the Spirit. That's how we came into the church. So we have to define what that means then, because some of you may think back to when you first believed and think, well, I don't remember anything special happening to me spiritually. I went from not believing in Jesus to believing in Jesus. What do you mean I was baptized by the Spirit? 
Well, again, we need to set aside all of these interesting notions that people have put on this topic about what that should look like, and just consider what happened to us when we got saved, what happened to us by the Holy Spirit. We first consider the washing away of sin. In Titus chapter 3, this kind of language is used that when we believed in Christ, there was a washing and renewal that took place in our hearts, in our souls, and that was by the Holy Spirit, Titus, or Paul said to Titus in Titus chapter 3. So washing away of sin, that's an important aspect of spirit baptism. Also, we were sealed the moment we believed. In Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4, it talks about the Holy Spirit coming into our lives, not that He would leave again, but to stay that He would come and He would seal us and permanently indwell us. That happens at the moment of belief, by being baptized by the Spirit. We also recognize, too, it's very pertinent in chapter 12, that from the moment of belief, the Holy Spirit came into our lives to lead us into sanctification, growing in Christ-likeness by giving us gifts. When did that happen? At the moment of belief, at the moment of conversion. You were gifted by the Holy Spirit with spiritual abilities to serve the body of Christ. And so as we think about what this means in verse 13, that all of us have been baptized into one body by one Spirit, we could sum it up this way. There was an initial work of the Spirit of God in the lives of His elect to cleanse us and place us. There was an initial work by the Spirit of God in the lives of His elect, to cleanse us. Cleanse us from what? Our sins. All that rebellion, all those things that were counted against us, it's been washed away. And to place us, that needs to be part of our definition of spirit baptism. We were placed into Christ's body. That's the connection Paul's making. Look at verse 13 again. For by one Spirit we were all baptized, and there's not a period there, it continues, we were baptized into one body. So if you are a believer in Christ, you have entered into membership in the body of Christ through the initial work of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to achieve that. You're not told, okay, believe in Jesus and then work your way toward being baptized by the Spirit to get into the body of Christ. That's not what the message of the New Testament is. The gospel says when you believe the Spirit enters your life, does this amazing initial work of cleansing you and placing you into the body. So whether you act like it or not, if you're a believer, you are in the body. You're a member of the body, and you've been cleansed from your sins. So we were baptized by the Spirit, and then at the end of that verse, verse 13, it says we were also made to drink of one Spirit. Notice the passive voice here. This is passive. It doesn't say we went out and found the drink and then drank it. It says we were made to drink. Puts us in the passive position and God again in the active position. Well, what does this mean to drink of the Spirit? Because that's another thing where you could read that and think, well, I don't remember drinking the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and if you do, uh, stick around for some conversation afterwards. I'd love to talk to you and figure that out. But uh, it says we were made to drink of one Spirit. What does this mean? Well, it means that the Holy Spirit has entered us, right? We are individually temples of the Holy Spirit. 
In 1 Corinthians 3, we discover that we are corporately, as we gather together, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to ask the Holy Spirit to come to our meetings, do we? He's here, isn't He? We don't have to invite Him. He's here. We're the temple of the Spirit. And we're also individually temples of the Holy Spirit. That's chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, that we house the Holy Spirit. He has entered into our lives. And so this drinking metaphor is really helpful to understand that He has come into us and He sustains us. Just like what we drink nourishes us, the Holy Spirit comes into us and nourishes us and empowers us. He is the primary influence over the believer by the power of God. We are primarily influenced by the Holy Spirit because we belong to the body of Christ. But now sandwiched between those two things, still in verse 13, we've got spirit baptism at the start. We have drinking of one spirit at the end. And in between, in that verse, we have this demographic note where Paul says, we've all done this, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. Now, he's not just talking about the distinctions that we have between gift, or with gifts, because we understand not all people are, are going to prophesy. Not all people are going to speak in tongues. That's been Paul's articulation so far. Not all people are going to have the gift of administration or word of wisdom or whatever it is. But he's not talking about giftings. He's talking about earthly demographics, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Why does he even bring that up? Well, these distinctions and demographics can be important. In fact, it, it really shows the depth of the unity through diversity that the body of Christ has, because in the first century, what other organism could you point to or organization could you point to and say, look at all those Jews and Greeks getting along and all those slaves and free getting along and having such great unity? There weren't rotary clubs back then consisting of Jews and Greeks or anything like that. There were there was great hostility between these groups, and yet in Christ, there's a fundamental oneness that's recognized between these groups. These groups come together, and there's unity, there's joy, there's peace. And that's not to say that the distinctions go away, because the distinctions do remain. But you have to hear this and recognize this, our distinctions are second to our unity. In fact, our distinctions only matter insofar as we have unity. It's important to recognize that the distinctions remain, but they are second to unity. Our distinctions do have implications for our lives and for ministry. You think about the different backgrounds that we have and the different capabilities that we have based on how we were raised and things of that nature. In fact, you could add to this list, as Paul does in Galatians 3, not just Jews or Greeks, not just slaves or free, but you could add male or female in there too, and as he does in Galatians 3.28. And does being male or female have implications for our ministry? Well, yes, it does. It does. So those distinctions do remain, but we recognize that there are no spiritual advantages on either side. By being slaves or by being free men, you don't have an inherent spiritual advantage over the other group. Same with male and female, same with Jews or Greeks, but we all come to Christ equally. The foot of the cross has level ground, as you've, you've been told. There's no spiritual advantage inherent to one side or the other. Yet we recognize those distinctions are still there. In fact, some people have tried to 
squash diversity in the name of unity, and that's not good. We need to maintain our distinctions amid our unity. We can't put too much of an emphasis on one or the other to minimize one for the sake of emphasizing the other in a way that's unbiblical. Some people would go to a passage like Galatians 3.28 and say, see, it says in Christ there's neither male nor female. So, therefore, we just should pretend like those distinctions don't exist. And today, you'll hear that from extremely liberal positions talking about just gender doesn't exist. You can pick your own gender. Or you can hear it in the context of there are no distinct roles for men and women in the home or in the church because it says there are no male or female. But Christ uses our distinctions in life and ministry, doesn't He? And these distinctions do remain to a certain extent. And God has so designed the world and so designed His church that these distinctions come alongside each other and there's harmony and they complement one each other, complement with an with a E, complement each other. They complement one another as we coexist in the unity that we have in Christ. The unity is paramount. That's the big idea, that we're unified even amid our diversity. And there are lots of movements out there now, and actually it's probably one big movement that just wears different hats. I'm sure you've heard enough about critical theory now over and over and over again, critical race theory and the social justice movement and things of that nature. But as we consider how theories like that affect the church, we need to be on our guard because theories like critical race theory will come alongside and squelch unity, rob unity to highlight diversity, to make much of distinctions. And that's not right because our diversity doesn't matter if we don't have unity. Our distinctions don't matter if we don't have unity. Our unity in Christ in the church is first and foremost. It has to be guarded against because we're naturally good at making distinctions, aren't we? We're very good in our flesh dividing up and making factions and groups. But we have to constantly bring ourselves back to the unity we have in Christ, and in that unity, we can more appreciate our diversity. So as we recognize our unity, we also recognize the necessity of each other. Let's continue reading, starting at verse 15. Again, using the illustration of the human body to reflect the body of Christ. Now, start at verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body. It is is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. So here... Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is really pressing that body illustration, and we're going to cover this next week too. But in the section we're covering this week, notice the quotes that are coming from these body parts. They have to do with inferiority. 
an I'm not good enough type of attitude. I don't belong type of attitude. And today I want us to address that thought and correct that thought and rightly perceive those emotions we might feel. Paul's going to be talking about here how the unity of the body is threatened. And this is one of the ways. The unity of the body is threatened when we look at the body and say, I don't fit in. I don't belong. I am not to serve with those people or to do what they are doing because I'm different. Consider this quote from John MacArthur. He writes, The diversity of the church is a God-ordained means of bringing the fellowship to oneness. But unless each diverse member recognizes and accepts his part in the whole body, diversity will divide rather than unite, destroy rather than build up, bring discord rather than harmony, and result in self-serving rather than self-giving. It's so true. There's, there are false ways that we go about thinking of ourselves and thinking of the body that do harm to the unity that we have in Christ. Notice that in both cases, the foot speaking and the ear speaking, Paul says neither one of them, by giving these statements, removes himself from the body. It would be interesting if your foot could speak, huh? If you woke up and your foot has something to say, you pull the sheets back and he says, I'm out of here. I'm not like the hand. I'm gone. <laughs> You say, well, where are you going to go, right? Same kind of idea with the body of Christ. You've been placed into the body as a member by God's work. You've been gifted by God's doing. And you look around and say, ah, it's not for me. Where are you going to go? Because for that reason, you're no less a part of the body. Paul is saying reality exists apart from how you feel. The reality is that you are a member of the body, apart from however you may think of yourself or consider yourself. So he's going to address these erroneous ways that we have of judging. Verse 18, I think, is the lens that we need to use as we examine these statements when it says emphatically that God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. That's key. Because this is a matter of obedience to God. Living out our role as members of the body is a, a part of obedience to God. It really is. Why has God gifted you and called you to serve in the body? It's because you need the body, and the body needs you. God has saved you, not that you could individually enjoy the spiritual blessings that come with the relationship with Christ. Now, that is a part of it. That's a big part of it. But that's not the whole story. God has saved you for the purpose of you functioning in a body. And He has placed you in a body. He baptized you and placed you into a body that you may serve. And so as we consider these statements and our role in the body, we have to keep in mind this is a matter of obedience because God is the one putting this body together. And if you say, ah, it's not for me, I love Jesus, but not His people. I want to serve Jesus, I just don't want to serve there with them. Think about what you're saying. Because verse 18 says, God is the one who's in charge of ordering these things. And you're telling God, 
I know that you put me in this body, but I don't want anything to do with them. You were wrong. It's not for me. That's a false way of thinking, isn't it? It's a rebellious way of thinking. And so let's consider these perceptions of ourselves. Again, going back to verse 15. The foot saying, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body. And the, verse 16, the ear saying, because I'm not an eye, I am not a part of the body. These are self-deprecating errors, perhaps. We can look at these types of statements in real life when people say things like this and think, well, that's a really humble thing to say, but that's a false humility, isn't it? It's not really true humility, it's a false humility, because what is the person doing? Well, there are three things that I see that are happening with statements such as these. The first is that the church member making such a statement is saying that he or she is not worthy. I am not worthy to be a part of the body because I'm not like fill in the blank. This is creating extra biblical standards of worthiness and qualification. Perhaps you've heard someone say, I don't have the background or the training or the tools of that person, so... I can't do it. I can't be involved. Now, there are certain circumstances where those things are helpful, and depending on what you're seeking to do in the church, there are qualifications. But generally speaking, for someone to say, all those Christians over there, they just got their act together, and I don't, and so I am not worthy. I'm not qualified to serve. Well, that is a made-up standard that is not a genuine excuse, because let me tell you, if you just stuck around a little bit, and got to know us, you might find out you have your stuff together more than most of us. (laughs) We may look like we have our stuff together, but don't be fooled by appearances. And really, someone saying, I'm not worthy to serve in the body because of fill in the blank, well, that's a rejection of what God has said about you. I loved the passage that Jerry opened our service with today, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Very important passage when the apostle says under inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God has given us. Do we have that one there? There we go. Okay. (laughs) So verse 3 is where it says God has given us. I'll start at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us some of what we need, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called you by His own glory and excellence. So if you're looking back at the, at the body of Christ and saying, I'm not worthy to participate, I think this passage is for you. I think this verse is for you. God has Himself granted to you everything pertaining to life and godliness. You've been equipped brother or sister, you've been equipped. You are worthy because God has made you worthy. Another aspect of such a statement, well, I'm not a hand, so I can't participate. I'm not an eye. That might be someone saying, I'm not important or effective enough to serve. Perhaps some of you can really relate to that feeling. I'm not important enough to be involved, or I'm not effective enough to be involved. I'm just a country boy. What do I know? I'm just a big dummy. 
I'm just a fill-in-the-blank. Or I wish, perhaps, you could say, I wish I was more like this person, fill-in-the-blank. I wish I was more this way so then I could serve and be effective. Well, what you're doing when you make such a statement is you're looking at the effects of someone's ministry or someone's service that we perceive on the surface and comparing those effects to yourself, which is not good. Comparing service in the body of Christ is a recipe for more and more division, and it's a disaster. The effects that we perceive in someone's service or ministry are so skewed anyway. What do we often look at? We look at numbers. We look at emotional responses. We look at all sorts of things that are on the surface, don't we? Because only God knows the heart. And so, brother or sister, don't go looking at other people's effectiveness and saying, well, because I couldn't be effective the way that person is being effective right now, I can't serve. Don't do that. It's just an excuse. What you might actually be doing is coveting what another person has. You might actually be looking at what you think you want or you think you need or you think you should have and saying, well, because I can't have that, I'm just not going to do it. Some people who say, well, if I'm just going to look bad or if I'm going to fail, I'm just not going to do it. You men in the room can relate to that, can't you? If I'm going to look stupid, I'm not going to do it. Not a good reason. Not a good reason. And you know where this line of thinking leads is to this view of, well, I'm just not in need of the body. Once you start going down those roads, where you inevitably end up is, I don't need them. I don't need them. I can't do it. I can't, I can't get involved like all those churchy people. I just, I don't need them. Well, this is a sad and illogical conclusion that many people have arrived at. Because they are not the way they think they should be, they just keep their distance. And this is so self-centered, people. This is so self-centered. Because here's the truth. Yeah, you're not great. You really do serve in some really messed up ways sometimes. You mess things up. You look bad. You hurt people's feelings. You step on toes. You do something wrong. Because he's not in the room, I'll, I'll, I'll mention it. It wasn't, man, I don't even know if it was 24 hours after <clears throat> the Woodheads arrived at our church. We had, all the chairs were rearranged in here for some reason. We had to put the chairs back in the auditorium. And Tyler, because he's a servant, but also because he's a big dummy. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, there's, a, there's a stack of chairs that he wants to move. And so what does a servant do? Well, he moves the stack of chairs and boop, he goes moving the stack of chairs. But what happens on this carpet, Rex, when you move a stack of chairs? Yeah. So we've got a Tyler mark back here behind the back row. <clears throat> but he's just, this is what happens when you serve. If, if someone were to come up here and just tell you guys all the times where I've left burnt carpet streaks places, you know, things like that, it's a long list. But this is exhibit A as to why you should be in the body, because you aren't perfect, and because we complement each other, and because we come together, and we make up what is lacking with each other, and we build one another up, and we grow together. And so we've got all these excuses, but those excuses are actually just evidence 
for why we should be here in the first place. Because we are messed up. Because we don't have it together. Because we don't see the world rightly. And so we need to commit to the body for this very reason. So our perceptions of ourselves can be so far off and our perceptions of the body can be so far off. As someone can arrive to the conclusion, well, I'm not in need of them, they can also start to think, well, they're not in need of me. Someone could say, well, the... Those people, they just think I'm useless or I just get in the way. No one gets in the way here. Can I tell you that? Just honest with you? I've never thought someone's just in the way. I wish they'd leave. Never thought that about anybody in this church. (laughs) We are in need of each other. We need one another because we're mutually dependent. If you start thinking, well, the body's fine without me, Well, is your body fine without one of your feet? Yeah, maybe your body can get along, but you're worse off for it, aren't you? Or if someone gets in the mindset of, I don't need to serve. The pastor's got it. Deacon's got it. Those people that I see all the time that are showing up, they got it. That's not true. We don't got it. There's a lot going on. We would love for you to be involved because we're dependent on you, absolutely dependent on you. This is the nature of our profound dependency. Some of you, I don't think, have much of an idea about how much we need each other, and that concerns me. At a very profound level, we need each other. You can think of the physical ways that we need each other because we have our building here and we interact. Do you know how many light bulbs are on our campus? I've done this before. I actually counted our light bulbs. (laughs) It was a slow week. (laughs) No. Uh, We have north of 250 light bulbs on our property. You know, someone's got to change those. Simple little things like today we took communion. Those little cups that start growing mold and bacteria and stuff, (laughs) start fermenting. Who's going to pick those up? That's got to get picked up. Just little things. Do you know we have a need for prayer? Who's praying for each other here? If we have this need where we're dependent on the prayers of one another, praying for each other. I love writing these cards, but I also love getting these cards, little encouragements where we're sharing just edifying words with one another from Scripture. We have so many ways to serve one another. And what you do in the body of Christ is you just see something and you go. You see that this is needed and you just go. And what happens is God will direct you to your ministry along the way. Maybe that is your ministry. Maybe that's yours to own for the rest of your life as a Christian. Or maybe along the way, you stumble into something else, and then you find this really deep sense of spiritual fulfillment in the way that you're serving now in the church because God has directed you to a very specific type of service that He designed you for when He he saved you. It's an amazing thing. And we'll talk more about this next week, but for now... Let's just consider that with God's gift, not only of salvation, but His Spirit working in us and gifting us, 
With God's gift comes responsibility, right? Because we're stewards. We're stewards of the earth, generally speaking. Yet as believers, we are spiritual stewards of what God has given us. And we are members of the body, regardless of how we feel, regardless of how we think, regardless of the excuses we make. We are in the body. And so as responsible stewards for God's gifting, let's move forward and consider our own situation and how God might use us here in this body to build one another up, to grow in Christ, to experience not only that profound dependency, but also that profound fulfillment in spiritual service. Can we commit to that together? And hopefully next week, I'll have a voice and we can talk about it. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you so much because this is your church. This is your body. And we ask that you would just do some more amazing works among us. You've done so many amazing things, but we look forward to seeing what you will do in the future, knowing that you're the one building your church and you're showing yourself to be faithful and full of mercy and grace and love with everything that you're doing here. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and direct our steps that we would serve you well here in this local body. In Jesus' name, amen.